Welcome to the Single Lady Estates podcast. My name is Bobby Wasserman, and I'm the founder of Single Lady Estates. Thank you for spending some of your time with us. Today, we are exploring clutter. And when I think of clutter, I think of having a lot of stuff that's turned into junk or don't need any more. This subject is so near and dear to my heart because before I recently moved, I got rid of over 20 file boxes of paperwork, all very organized and neat, but completely unnecessary to my life. And when those boxes of papers were shredded and tossed, I felt terrific. It was a load lifted. I can't explain it, but today's guest can. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Regina Lark, And Dr. Lark is a board-certified professional organizer with additional certifications in ADHD, chronic disorganization, and hoarding disorders. She has a PhD in history focused on gender studies and women's history. Dr. Lark is a best-selling author, speaker, and expert that is called upon by some of the country's most prestigious organizations. In 2008, she founded A Clear Path, followed by Speaking of Clutter. She has been featured on A&E's hit television show, Hoarders, has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and the Los Angeles Times, as well as many other publications. What I love about Regina is that she creates bridges between academia and practicality. So you'll leave here with some great tips, some actionable items, and the psychology behind those efforts. Welcome, Dr. Lark. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is so exciting. Your background is fascinating. Can you talk about your interest in women and the focus on organization and the emotional labor that women carry? Well, when I was 30 years old, I was a non-traditional student. I was a community college student for 12 years, and then I transferred to a state university to complete my bachelor's degree. And at the age of 30, I took my first women's history class. And it was a mind-blowing experience because it gave me a language for what I believed to be true about women that were awesome and that were smart, and we probably invented a lot of things. And I just fell in love with the study of women. And so through my undergrad and then a master's degree and then eventually to the PhD, every book I read, every paper I wrote, every class I took... I infused my knowledge with reading and writing about women. So I finished a PhD in women's history from the University of Southern California. And then at one point in my journey, I had transitioned from being an adjunct professor of history and women's studies to academic administrator at UCLA. And I had jobs at UCLA that took me to adult learning and I finished my UCLA years as a director of programs for uh, UCLA Extension. And while I was there, I went on vacation to visit a friend in Jerusalem. And while I was in Jerusalem, I said to my friend Nadra, I said, Nadra, I don't want to be a tourist today. How about if I do your kitchen? And she's like, what does that mean? And I said, Nadra, your girls are in their 30s and you got sippy cups in the cupboard. Just let me do what I do. So... I decluttered and organized her kitchen, and I got back to my desk at UCLA, and one week later, I learned that my unit was being dismantled and my position eliminated, and within nine days, I was unemployed. And what had happened in that moment is I recognized that the goddess of jobs was doing for me what I could not do for myself. The job hadn't been a good fit for a long time. I was 
tied to a particular salary. So I was laid off, and two months into my layoff, I told Ronnie, my roomie, I said, well, I'm not finding a job. It was the beginning of the recession. I was laid off because of budget cuts. I said, I'm going to organize until something better comes along. And we looked up organizers in our zip code, and the first person to come up is a woman named Catherine Macy, and she is known to my roommate in a completely different capacity. And I read her website. She's got a PhD in mechanical engineering. And I thought, holy cow, organizers are smart people. So we called her up. We walked over to her place for dinner. I thought of the name of my company on that walk. I looked down an alley and I thought, ah, maybe it should start with the letter A. How is a clear path? So I walked into Catherine's house learning about the world of professional organizing. I had no idea it existed. And she hired me as an assistant. And within the first couple of weeks of doing some assistant jobs with her, I thought, my gosh, people like us are needed womb to tomb, cradle to grave. We can organize a nursery for a new family, get it all set up. And when that family's parents are leaving this planet, we can help get the estate ready for sale. So across the board, through the whole arc of life, one could benefit from a professional organizer. So I started my organizing company, and I thought I was leaving the world of women's history and my PhD behind me. But I began spending a lot of time with women. It's mostly professional women between the ages of 40 and 70 who are calling in a professional organizer. And I've concluded that's because they are acknowledged as the most responsible person. They've taken it all on themselves of doing all household management heretofore known as women's work. So I'm listening to these women talk about their crowded homes and their clutter, and I'm noticing a thread. And it's a thread of shame and despair and anxiety and depression. And these are smart, professional women who are high achievers, high earners. Many of them are at the top of their game professionally, and they feel lousy about themselves because they don't find that they're able to fulfill the socially subscribed role of wife and mother. And so while I'm listening to them talk about the despair regarding not feeling up to par when it comes to household management and household labor and what we call emotional labor, and I'm, I'm hearing them feel really badly about themselves. And I had this light bulb moment and I remember sitting on the floor in Sylvia's living room and she's really down on herself, and the kids make fun of her because she can't do X, Y, and Z. You know, the dinner is never on time. And I said, Sylvia, just because you have a vagina doesn't mean you're supposed to know how to do all of these things. <laughs> it's work. It's a lot of work. And as I am hearing women talk about this, everything I know about women's history is flooding back into my head, and I'm remembering the cult of domesticity that emerges in the mid-19th century and the breakup of the domestic and the public sphere where women are now charged with being responsible for hearth and home and men responsible for the rough-and-tumble world of commerce and industry. I'm recognizing, too, in, on the side of my life as a professional organizer, I'm being called into really crowded, cluttered conditions. And when I first started and I said, okay, when I come back, why don't you have gone through this pile of mail and you could have knocked me over with a feather. I would go back and not only was that pile of mail not gone through, but there were other piles of mail 
that had emerged since my last visit. So parallel to me hearing women talk about their anxiety and shame about not being great homemakers, I'm also enrolled in coursework and study to learn more about our brain and the part of the brain that allows us to be on task, on time, emotionally managed, that we are able to be productive, linear, that our to-do lists become done. Because the clients I'm working with, I'm recognizing that they probably don't have a good relationship with time. Because of all the stress and worry and the heap of work on their shoulders, they probably aren't very emotionally managed. I would imagine a lot of them fly off the handle. So my coursework about the brain and the prefrontal cortex impact of that part of our brain on our relationship to our environment and to stuff and to time, I began to just really open up my eyes to new ways to look at not only the work of the household, but what it takes to actually do the work. That's fascinating. And you mentioned that women of all ages, although you specify between 40 and 70, but these women uh, that continue to carry the mental and emotional workload of the household, our audience is primarily single women of all ages, single mothers, or as I like to say, married women who, when it comes to the home, feel like they are single. So in context of your research and your experience, can you talk about how those traditional norms are being broken down by women and how society is supporting that? Maybe this question is really about the changing perception or role of women's work. I like what you said about women who are partnered and they still feel like they're single at home because they're doing the majority of the work. I don't know if we have seen many structural, societal, or systemic change when it comes to who's doing what at home. When I think of women who are not partnered, they often are managing all of their household responsibilities on their own, depending on how old they are also going to start thinking about, or they already are, managing their parents as their parents are aging. They may be the adult daughter in a family that doesn't have her own family, and so she may be looked upon as the designated person to do all kinds of things. So I think that women by and large, whether they're partnered or they're single, whether they're cohabiting with roommates, I think women by and large continue to shoulder the burden of the invisible, the unacknowledged, the unwritten, the undervalued, the chronicness of what I call the longest job description in herstory. <laughs> and we have in so many ways broken through the glass ceiling. Just in the last two years, when it comes to a national conversation on diversity, on equity, on inclusion, so much of the conversation about the glass ceiling and DEI initiatives and manifestations, so much of the conversation centers outside of the home. And I haven't seen statistical relevancy to concepts of gender equity inside the home. If women continue to shoulder the burden of the physical work of the household, but the emotional, the cognitive, the noticing, 
work of the household, then there's no equity there. Yeah. You know, research out of UC Riverside on life satisfaction showed that women tend to draw on social resources to assess their satisfaction with their lives. And men tend to focus on financial and occupational status. Yet more women are being educated and taking on financial obligations like home ownership. Can you explain how disruptive this shift is or if it is disruptive? And if part of that disruption includes this organizational and hoarding issue? Hoarding is a brain-based illness that is in a league of its own. So I'm going to move that over to the side for a moment. I'm really intrigued by this UC Riverside study. And where I see a great disruption is going to be on the side of single women with children earning a decent income, but maybe not an income available yet to put 20 or more percent down on a single family home. What I see happening, what I believe is trending in a lot of communities, is single straight women with kids buying houses with each other. And that's a disruption because, as you probably know, there was a time that a single woman couldn't buy a house without a uh, co-signer. She couldn't own a credit card. I mean, so in the last 40 or 50 years, only in the last 40 or 50 years, we've seen this disruption. So as women become more and more educated on financial matters, they're seeing very quickly that home ownership is one of the best ways to begin to grow your queendom. And if you can do that in partnership with somebody else that you know, like, and trust, and you've got all the paperwork signed and it's legal. But I think the coolest part about these cohabitations is the division of household labor. One of the things that my study showed is that when I talked to same-sex couples, in terms of the division of labor, a lot of gender equity happens in same-sex households because there's no gender division of labor at home. They have to talk about it. They have to talk about not only who's good at something, but if neither adult in the household is good at a particular task or chore, well, they're either going to decide to outsource it or they're going to just not do it. So I think that's what's happening. So that's another type of disruptor when you have adult women who are raised to understand the running of a household management, then put that added layer of having financial acumen, I think it's pretty remarkable, so that then they can divide the division of labor at home. It won't be too onerous for any one person. And because they understand the work that has to be done, they have a tendency to value it more. And I just want to say one more thing about that value. When I was writing my book, called Emotional Labor, Why a Woman's Work is Never Done and What to Do About It. In the writing of the book, every now and again, I would post a question on Facebook to my pals and just wanted a snapshot of their day. And one of my questions was, if there is one task at home that you could delegate right now, what would it be? Jennifer wrote and she said, well, fortunately, my spouse is in charge of all the non-financial work of our home. 
And I said, Jen, are you the primary wage earner? And she said, yes. And I said, isn't that something? You uplift and elevate his job status, right? He does all the non-financial work at home. She says that because she really gets the value of that work. Now, I'll tell one more story on the face of that. During COVID, we're in shutdown, and I happen to do a lot of professional business networking. So I'm in the Zoom room, and I'm networking with women and men all around Southern California. And invariably, I would be in the Zoom room with a couple of guys, and I would say, how's it going in there? Because I'd see, you know, a cat walk across a keyboard, and I'd see a kid pulling hair, and I'm like, you know, what's it like having everybody home? So many men said to me these words. Well, luckily, my wife's not working. <laughs> Love that. And I would say, well, why keep her? What is she doing, watching Ellen and eating bonbons all day? I mean, and then every one of them would say, no, we have three kids. And I'm going, call it work, man. I mean, it is a shitload of work. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting, too, because when people started to have to teach their children at home, you know, the respect for teachers, I think, went up tenfold <laughs> when they realized how their perfect little angels might not be so perfect in a school setting. Uh, one other thing that you had mentioned that I wanted to go back to is you mentioned that women are buying homes together, younger women. But also, my understanding is that older women are also doing that. Women that are retiring, they're no longer married or, or their spouses have passed away or whatever it is, they are teaming up with friends kind of like a la the Golden Girls, and they're going and purchasing nice homes in great areas and living their life. And I was curious if you had any knowledge or research about that. What I have had knowledge of are just because of my background in women's history, for the last two centuries, women have created intentional living communities. So women have, whether they're as lesbians or as single older women or as widows, these intentional communities, they've been around. What I'm seeing now is similar to what we're seeing in younger women. I'm not getting Google alerts on this topic. I wouldn't even know how to frame it. But statistically, women have always been outliving men. And so it really makes sense to cut down on expenses, buy something big and beautiful together in a 55-plus community where you have all the amenities at your fingertips and live life in ways that you just have not given yourself the opportunity to do. Yeah, I think also one of the big shifts I've noticed just being a woman in our culture is that women are more and more trusting of each other because we're seeing each other in our professional lives in ways that we hadn't 40, 50, 60 years ago. We're learning to trust each other. We're learning to network in very meaningful ways with each other and doing trips together and vacations. So I see a lot of connecting of women prior to, I don't know, you know, I would say through the 20th century at least, girls and women were taught to despise one another, to be in competition with one another. 
there was this weird idea that there was a man shortage. And as a result of that, you know, we had to outshine each other. I personally don't see that type of competitive nature in women my age, and I'm 60 years old, and even women in their 50s, I see much more connecting, communicating, sharing what's really happening in their homes and in their lives. So I see a lot of good trends in that direction. Excellent. I also am within your age range, and I also see it at work, uh, where the competitiveness isn't there anymore. It's much more collaborative which is terrific. But I wanted to shift our conversation a little bit because I wanted to know really what the psychological difference was between a hoarder and someone who just has a lot of clutter. So somebody with a hoarding disorder, and I personally don't use the term hoarder. It wouldn't like be, for me, it's like calling somebody an alky. I think hoarding is something that they have innate to their brain structure and not who they are. So I think of persons who hoard, and this is how I understand the hoarding brain. Two parts to it. Well, I'm sure there are many parts to it. I'm a lay person when it comes to the brain. But people with a hoarding disorder, where there is similarity with people who have a lot of clutter is that the executive function part of the brain for both somebody with excessive clutter, not hoarding, and somebody with a hoarding disorder, the executive function part of the brain is tweaked or compromised. So we're going to leave that there for a moment. So if the person with a hoarding disorder has a tweaked or compromised executive function, what makes their behavior different? What makes their acquiring even look so different? And it has to do with what I understand is the salient network of the brain. And the salient network of our brain simply tells us what has salience, what has value, and what doesn't. So, for example, somebody with a hoarding disorder may find value in everything that they acquire because they see its intrinsic nature can serve so many purposes. So for good or ill, a pack of matches can have multiple uses. I was working with a person that I've identified as the guy who was the first person I worked with had an unmanaged hoarding disorder, was Mikey. And Mikey, at one point in our journey together, we were tackling the drinking glasses in the cabinets. There had to be 200 drinking glasses. They were everywhere in the kitchen. And we pulled so many down, and I said, okay, Mikey, is there any way you can pick out the best 20 glasses? He's like, no problem. And I turned my back, and I was doing something else, and he pulled out the best 20 tall ones and the best 20 small ones and the best 20 juice glasses and the best 20 yellow. They were yellow glasses with daisies. I mean, I recognized that he understood my question in ways that I did not mean and that what he valued was these are the best 20 of this category. So he valued categorization. Another thing about Mikey, which I thought was so telling, is at one point we had uncovered a beautiful diamond ring that had belonged to his deceased spouse. And it was on this list of, in your wildest dreams, if you could find X, Y, or Z, what would that look like? And so the ring was on there. And I'm like, Mikey, we found the ring. And I had put this on a shelf next to him. 
and I have my eye on it, and we're about to move it. And then he found a whole bunch of screws and nuts and bolts. And his focus at that moment was not on the ring. It was looking for a container for the nuts and bolts. And he spots one across the room, and he goes after it. I said, Mikey, the ring, and it falls down. <laughs> it gets buried again. And he goes, I'll get it later. So the way his brain is wired to take in information, what he sees as valuable or not having value is very different than the cluttery person. So why is the executive function so significant to this? In order for anybody to get anywhere on time, to write something down on the to-do list and check it off, in order for that to happen, you need to have a functioning executive function. It's the gray matter. It's the most developed part of the human brain. Back in cave person days, way, way back, 50,000 years ago, cave woman would step out of the cave and she's operating on the early part of the brain, the amygdala, this limbic system, the part of our brain, the fight or flight. People have all heard fight or flight. So Cavewoman walks out, and what she notices outside the cave is the soothing body of water. And her brain just goes right. She doesn't have words or language to identify the water. She's like, ah, that's for me. And she may walk out of the cave and see a saber-toothed tiger. She also doesn't have the words or the language to describe that, but she knows to get the hell out. That's our fight-or-flight brain. That's the earliest part of our brain. The ways in which humankind evolved since then is right now we live with our executive function. And our executive function allows us to manage our relationship with time. It keeps our emotions steady. Our executive function is timeliness, planning, prioritizing. Our executive function can help us move away from distractions. It's where we are productive. The executive function can become tweaked or compromised with ADHD. ADHD can probably be called executive function dysfunction, depression, anxiety, people taking heavy medication. I do Declutter 101 talks for the cancer support community here in Los Angeles. We talk about chemo brains. So a diagnosis of cancer and then all those really crappy medicines, that's going to whack your executive function. So people with hoarding disorder also have a compromised executive function plus other networks are also compromised. Folks with a lot of clutter tend to have executive function challenges. And we notice that early on when they're kids. When I'm hiring to join my team, I say, as a kid, you were known for organizing your Barbies or your books. People with executive function challenges, the parent would send them into their room and they go clean your room. And you go in your room, you're like, I don't know what to do. I hate this. I'd rather draw color, talk on the phone with my friends. And these behaviors around the tedious, mind-numbing, boring, repetitive tasks of staying organized are kind of lost on people with executive function challenges. They're much more looking toward the shiny object. They'd much rather sometimes do a deep dive looking at kittens on Facebook than sit down and pay their bills. So as a professional organizer, when I'm getting calls about clutter, not the hoarding disorder, not clearing out of states, but something like, ah, oh, you know, I moved in here 10 years ago and I still have boxes that are not unpacked. 
or several times a year I clean my desk off, but it comes back. Whenever I hear that relationship with the stuff, that relationship or behaviors to their environment, I'm thinking that I'm probably talking to somebody who's chronically disorganized based on these brain-based conditions. You know, Regina, to me that's fascinating because I think everyone listening can see a little bit of themselves in that, but we stop ourselves and we get it together and we organize, we pay our bills, maybe then go back to the cats on Facebook. (laughs) But can you talk to us a little bit of how to declutter and the process of how to declutter and how that impacts us? Yeah, that's a great question because if one has what they're calling clutter, they're usually pretty overwhelmed by it. They have tried many ways of tackling it. They have failed themselves miserably. Marie Kondo doesn't work for them. So one way to start is to get a piece of paper and a pencil or whatever your choice of taking notes. And I would actually go to every single part of my home, wherever there's clutter, and just make a list, write down a long list without guilt, without shame, without judgment, just write it down. What do you have to tackle? You're in the kitchen. You're like, I've got four junk drawers. I'm thinking, well, if you have junk, why are you putting in a drawer? You have four junk drawers. You have a packed linen closet. Just go through it and write it down. Please don't judge yourself. You've done plenty of that. This is not the time to call yourself names. As objectively as you're able, just write down the list. Then, next to each task, just without filters, write down how long do you think it will take you to complete that task? How long would it take to do a junk drawer, to do a shelf on the linen closet? You're not doing anything but guesstimating. So you got a list of the tasks that you want to tackle, and then you're making a list of how long you think it's going to take you to do it. And then I would pick one thing. I would pick something that's very benign, unemotional. You know, you don't want to tackle your clothing closet right away because I've noticed that a lot of our closets are just filled with emotion about how we used to look, who we used to be, what we thought about ourselves 10, 15, 20 years ago. Leave the clothing closet alone for now. Pick the junk drawer. I like starting with the junk drawer because... Really, you may cringe at the number of Bed Bath & Beyond coupons you have in there, but pretty much you won't be too upset. So you've decided to tackle a junk drawer, and one way to increase the likelihood that you will succeed in that task is put it on the calendar. One of the reasons why we're successful in my company with our clients is because we have a 9 a.m. start time. And at 9 a.m., the client opens the door and the team walks in. So put it on the calendar and give the junk drawer whatever time you think. If you said it was going to take you 20 minutes to do a junk drawer, set a timer for 20 minutes. So it's on the calendar. You've got your timer set for 20 minutes. You've got to get ready for the task. And so if it's a junk drawer, I would move away everything on top, on the countertop above the drawer, lay down an old sheet or towel, 
And to the left and right of you on the floor have a recycle container and a trash container. Then I would pull the drawer out. Oh, and on the old sheet or towel, put a bowl of warm sudsy water. Then I would pull the drawer out and just dump it on the towel. And anytime you find keys or coins, they're going to be gross and sticky. Put them in the warm, sunsy water. Don't go try the keys. Don't leave your station. You only got 20 minutes. So you're going to be a bird's eye view on this pile of stuff from your first junk drawer, and you're going to sort, and you're just going to start tossing everything that makes sense to toss. And you're going to be amazed by the crumbly band-aids and rubber bands. And, oh, there's that political button that I remember wearing at the rally. And how many Bed Bath & Beyond coupons does one household need? I always say three because you're always going to get one in the mail. Whenever I see a lot of Bed Bath & Beyond coupons, I think, wow, there's a whole lot of shopping about to happen in a house that really doesn't need a whole lot of shopping. Now, 20 minutes have gone by and you're not done. Good information. Really good information. You'll know you'll need 20 minutes, more than 20 minutes for the next junk drawer. Observe why it took longer than 20 minutes. If you have the time on your calendar for another 20 minutes, hit the timer again. I use the junk drawer as an example because a lot of us with clutter don't know how long it takes us to do anything. We're always kind of behind the eight ball. We're going to get to it sometime. I don't have time. There is no time. I'm out of time. We're not really connecting with how long things take. So one of the reasons why I use the time, you know, timing the junk drawer, if we time the junk drawer, if we give ourselves that 20 minutes and we recognize we need more time, take in that information. Because if you're going to embark on DIY declutter projects, in order to increase the likelihood of your success, you've got to give it blocks of time and you've got to put that time on the calendar. And if you're going into areas where you might recognize more emotions, my gosh, bookcases bring up a lot of emotion. Old school papers bring up a lot of emotion and our clothing. We have such an interesting relationship to our clothing. So if you're going into declutter areas that you feel may cause some agita, grab a friend, a kind, objective, understanding friend who will be able to say, honey, that never looked good on you anyway. We're going to put it in the donation bag. You don't want your friend to take it. They have clutter. <laughs> but if they do have clutter, you can have a reciprocity agreement and help each other out. Or connect in your community. Look for professional organizers. You can find them at the National Association of Organizing and Productivity Professionals. It's napo.net. And taskrabbit.com. If you type in personal organizers, you will find people who are doing the work as well. The difference between NAPO and TaskRabbit, from what I've seen, is NAPO members are all business owners. I would say they have liability insurance. They have taken our code of ethics. It's a different caliber of declutterer or organizer. But if you just want a quick and dirty, get it the hell out of my house, you might want to go to a lower price point and work with somebody off of TaskRabbit. Terrific. Regina, thank you so much for your insight. You provided some great information and tips that our listeners can not only appreciate, that they can put into action. 
So we're all so busy, and sometimes it's so much easier just to throw things in the corner, in the garage, you know, in the closet, and just say, I'll get to this later. And then all of a sudden, you've got a huge pile, and it's later. And I don't think people really understand the emotional toll that takes. And now perhaps they do. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure speaking with you. I really love your questions. They were very unique. You gave me a lot to think about as well. So thank you so much. Your listeners can find me at reginalark.com. So thank you all for listening to the Single Lady Estates podcast. To learn more about what Dr. Lark discussed and to join our community, go to our website at singleladyestates.com. We've got some really great news. We launched our Single Lady Estates merchandise store, and you can find our signature mug and notebook on our website. 